Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may recognize my voice or my mug from our other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where I also have the privilege and daunting honor each week of interviewing business titans and famous celebrities and people from all walks of life that have done remarkable things, survived remarkable traumas, researched remarkable breakthroughs to help everyone become a better leader. And after five years of that podcast, we realized that it wasn't always the big movie star or the Pulitzer Prize winning author that had the most number of downloads or likes or reviews. It was often people like you and I that had a career that was relatable, somewhat enviable in a good way. And so we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where each week we interview people again, like you and I, that have had remarkable journeys to tease out insights on how we can also make our career journeys. For some of you, the goal might be to the C-suite. Some of you, many of you are, have earned that path and maybe want to stay or leave. But either way, we'd like to interview great guests. And today we have uh, a doctor in the house. Her name is Dr. Taryn Marie Stayskull. She actually is a neuroscientist. She's an author host a popular podcast, and is a well-known researcher on resilience. She's a practitioner on resilience, and you'll learn more about that in a few moments as we delve back into her even non-professional journey. Doctor, welcome to today's podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I am so delighted to be here with you. So Dr. Stayskull, you have a new book release, and we don't typically talk about books on this podcast, but when there's a book that has a profound offering like yours, I'd like to hold up and mention it. Your book is just released called The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, Why Some Flourish When Others Fold. And we're going to talk in a few minutes around what those five practices are. But in addition to being uh, a neuroscientist, you also are an expert on performance and leadership development uh, prior to becoming the founder and chief resilience officer of your own organization, the Resilience Leadership Institute. You had a pretty remarkable journey at uh, well-known companies, Nike and Cigna. Would you maybe rewind a couple of decades, no offense, on the longevity, and maybe reorient our listeners and viewers to your professional career? We'll talk about your personal journey in a few moments and maybe reestablish your credibility around your role and your passion for leadership development and performance improvement. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. So I began my career in neuropsychology, and I thought that I would spend essentially uh, my entire tenure in rehabilitation psychology. And pretty early, I achieved my goal of being able to bring together this holistic approach to to treating neurological injury, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. And As I thought about my goals being completed in that era of my career, I checked in with um, my peers who were completing degrees in clinical psychology. And I said, you know, what are some other ideas, some things that I might look at? And they pointed me in the direction of industrial organizational psychology. And at that time, David Rock, whom I'm sure you and many others are familiar with, uh, was just starting to come on the scene with the Neuroleadership Institute. And I thought, ah, This is the connection between neuropsychology and what it means to have a career in in business. And so I worked for a number of years as a management consultant doing human capital work. Then I had the opportunity to go in-house at Cigna and ultimately lead global leadership development 
across our offices in 86 countries around the world. And then from there, I was invited to come out to Nike and I spent time in Portland, Oregon, where I headed up executive leadership development and talent strategy. And that meant that I was aligned to our C-suite there. Mark Parker was the CEO at the time. I was working directly with a number of our athlete partners on resilience. And my team and I oversaw the development and growth and assessment and career mobility of our top 400 vice presidents. Dr. Seiskel, when I, interview, I introduced you, I mentioned twice, I think, maybe wrongly, that you were a neuroscientist. Is the right term a neuropsychologist? And what's the difference? Sure. You know, I completed pre- and post-doctoral fellowships uh, with the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and that was focused on neuropsychology. So really thinking about the structures of the brain and how that impacts our psychology, our behavior, how we think, uh, even our physicality, how we move through the world. Um, however, I think neuroscientist is also a great term. It's it's about uh, a type of scientist who studies the brain or an aspect of the brain, so that fits as well. You have an indisputably daunting resume, both academically and professionally. But in elementary school, that wasn't the perceived trajectory by some of your teachers. Would you, uh, would you maybe relax some of our viewers and listeners so that they can relate to your journey? Because you had a fascinating thing happen to you in elementary school around your reading propensity, and then you went on to, of course, become and earn a PhD, your doctorate, and then along the way there was a diagnosis. Talk about that and maybe give voice and validation to millions of people that might breathe a sigh of relief three minutes from now. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting because no career or life is without struggle or challenge. And so I'm so glad, Scott, that you've taken us here because um, when we read others' resumes, you know, there's this, sort of this sense, I think, that emerges for us around um, maybe self-comparison. And so let me sort of normalize myself and my experience uh, for our listeners and also share the sort of the flip side of that coin. So in elementary school, uh, when we began to be tested for reading ability, I landed in the lowest reading group uh, in first and second grade. And, you know, there's these moments, right, where you go around the class and everybody is reading out loud and I could like see that like that it was my turn coming my direction and I would stumble over words and I felt so embarrassed. And then in third grade, I got this idea and I, I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to be in the lowest reading group anymore. And although I was having difficulty with reading, I also noticed that in terms of the way that I analyzed problems or as I did math, um, that I wasn't you know, in sort of the, the lower third of my class, if you will. So I started to think that I had maybe the ability to do better in reading because I was doing well in some other subjects. So what I did is I went home and I tried to figure out how I could read better. And there were really difficult words for me, like um, if you think about neighbor, um, N-E-I-G-H, right? That's a tough word to spell. Um, way sounds sort of different than neighbor, but it's also spelled the same way, W-E-I-G-H. 
So what I started to do is I started to group words by how they were spelled and how they sounded. And then I would practice them so that I could become a better reader. So when I saw those words on the page, I wouldn't stumble as much. And lo and behold, in third grade, through my own kind of workaround and, and rudimentary practice, I moved up to the highest reading group. Um, then by fifth grade, my reading comprehension was at a high school level. Uh, then something interesting happened at age 37. I always knew that I experienced the world in a different way. I've always had difficulty with directions, uh, sequencing, getting from one place to the next, obviously spelling and reading, a few other things like that. And I finally decided that I would get myself tested uh, and see if I had a learning disability. And sure enough, at age 37, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. And what I find is that dyslexia has been a, you know, a tremendous gift to me because I absolutely, I absolutely see the world in a very different way than many other people. Uh, I can see patterns uh, that other people don't see, uh, trends, because I really trained my brain to look for the patterns and trends in, in words. Uh, to teach myself. And many people who are dyslexic have great memories because we have such difficulty reading or finding things on a page that I memorized a lot of things because I didn't know if I was going to be able to find it again, let alone be able to read it. So although learning disabilities are you know, tremendously challenging, I'm also deeply grateful for the way that as a neuroatypical person, I see the, wor I see the world. And I find that it's really important for me to talk about having a learning disability um, not only to share this part of my journey to sort of balance out uh, my resume, you know, as you suggested, and also knowing that having a learning disability and coming up in a neuroatypical world is very difficult. So to give other people a sense of hope and encouragement that are in that process. Dr. Stasekul, I really appreciate <laughs> you sharing that. Uh, you've practiced one of the practices of highly resilient people, and that is vulnerability. We will get to that in a few moments. Because like you, unlike you, I don't have a PhD, but like you, um, I, I've had a lifelong speech impediment. Uh, decades of speech pathology, speech therapy, braces. I'm a lifelong stutterer. And there's different types of stuttering and different reasons why stuttering happens and such, but not dissimilar to you, I built some workarounds. And there's about 70 or so words I cannot say in public. It, it, it quintuples in the cold. And so what I did as a coping mechanism is I became a voracious reader and built this large vocabulary. So when a word would be coming up, kind of like when the reading was coming to you, I know when a word is coming up two or three sentences from now that I know I cannot say in public, I now have a file drawer that I can open up metaphorically and pull out a word in its place. It doesn't always fit exactly, but I built this massive workaround through reading and having words at my disposal. And I think when I share that, not gratuitously, but judiciously, I think it helps build my resiliency, but it shows others, yeah, actually Scott's just like me. I may not have mm -hmm. dyslexia, or someone else may not have a speech impediment, but everyone has something going on that they wrestle with. Could be imposter syndrome or something that's a clinical diagnosis. And so I appreciate you leading out, talking about the power of vulnerability. We will come back to that. There's another story I'd like to delve in, and with your permission from our conversation off camera, you very publicly talked about uh, several decades of PTSD that you suffered and struggled and have worked through as a result of a stalking experience you had 
in high school. I don't know a lot about it, but would you share with our listeners and viewers what happened, how you dealt with that, the PTSD related to that, and how that's built in you a level of resilience to look at you now? Mm, Well, thank you for that. Yeah, the experience of developing PTSD, you know, this began when I was 14 years old. I was getting ready for school in the morning uh, in a bedroom that was on the ground floor. Uh, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and so we have sort of a cool October. I was just starting high school, and my windows in my bedroom were sort of open, a crack at the bottom with the shade the rest of the way down. And I had gotten ready for school that morning, gotten dressed in my bedroom. It was still dark outside. And uh, I had my stereo on playing playing music. And I always say, you know, for those of you that are joining us today that don't know that we didn't always play music from our cell phone uh, and, and through a remote speaker, there was such a thing as a stereo that played music and, and see me after for other obsolete devices like VHSs and, and butter churns. Um, and so I, w- I went over to turn off my stereo to turn off the music. And there was this face at the bottom of the window. And I was flipping through sort of my mental experiences, trying to understand why there would be a, a face there. And I was thinking maybe my dad was outside playing a trick on me. And so I said, dad, and the voice said, take off your clothes. You're beautiful. And that shocked and terrified me. And so I ran from my room and called for my parents and the police, you know, took down a um, a, a police report. And they said, you know, this is probably just a fluke, probably just someone passing through the neighborhood. And life went on. And 10 months later, my parents were out of town. I was in my bedroom once again, changing in the evening. I'd always kept that window where I saw his face um, shut tight. And it was summertime. Maybe we didn't have the air conditioning on or something yet. And I had the window open that faced the back of the house. And once again, in my bedroom, I heard his voice. And he said, I've been waiting a long time for this. And for me in that moment, three things became true as my life fundamentally changed. The first was I was naked in front of a man for the first time. The second was my childhood bedroom, which should be a safe place for children growing up, became profoundly unsafe. And the third was it was clear to me that this wasn't a fluke. This was someone who was absolutely targeting me. And so this went on uh, for the next couple of years while I was in high school. His behavior continued to escalate. He tried to break into our home. He tried to break into a home that I was babysitting in in the neighborhood. But we didn't know who he was. And when I went on um, to undergrad, I realized when I was um, sitting in my psychology classes with the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which for those of you that don't know is really the manual that we use to make uh, diagnoses around mental health, I realized I met all of the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, Ultimately, uh, he unfortunately brutally raped and attacked another woman in our neighborhood after I went away to college and was sentenced to prison for 20 years. And I also say I spent time in captivity because I met the diagnostic criteria for PTSD for two decades, for 20 years. And May, being Mental Health Awareness Month, this has been a really important story for me to get to tell, um, to engage in my vulnerability as we discussed, and also as we think about sharing our resilience stories. 
Our resilient stories are oftentimes the stories that we most don't want to tell. I hid meeting the diagnostic criteria for PTSD for a very long time, especially from my employers, because I thought as a high potential young executive, this would discredit me and potentially my career path. And yet now I think there's this tremendous movement and opportunity that invites us to bring our whole selves to work and to appreciate that some of the hardest things that have happened in our lives are also the things that form us and make us great. Uh, I have three young sons with my wife, Stephanie, that are 8, 10, and 12. And I'm, I'm, I, when you said, you know, your bedroom should be you know, like you know, a sanctuary, right? It should be a safe spot. I just couldn't imagine what your parents were going through and, and the trauma and the torture and the terror that you went through. What would you say to parents as a neuropsychologist about when this kind of thing happens once? Is there any, are there any lessons learned? I mean, should your parents have hired a private detective? Should you have moved? What, what, what could have been done differently, if anything, in hindsight that could help other parents who are listening to this to maybe set better boundaries, take better precautions? Could some things be done in hindsight differently that other parents who are right now speechless listening to this could say, okay, so I'm gonna do this differently if this ever happens to my child? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Scott, I love that you shared your boys and we have children that are very similar in age. I have two sons that are 11 and nine. And so, Obviously, at this point in my life, I think about this experience from the perspective of being a child and what it meant to grow up with this experience. And now I, too, have the opportunity to think about how I am overseeing and, and protecting and stewarding my own children's lives. And, you know, what I'll say, there's a couple of things here. So one of my sort of healing journeys, if you will, that I have been on is how to account for the things that my parents did and did not do. And my desire, especially in retrospect, that they would have done more, that they would have taken this more seriously. And I think there was a period of time where uh, this was dismissed or they didn't believe me for some reason. And I think for many parents, to your point, Scott, it's, it's, so terrible that oftentimes as a parent or as a person it's it's easier maybe to believe that it's that it's not happening or somehow our children are maybe blowing things out of proportion and one of the things that i've that i've grappled with is that in fact my father was in law enforcement my father uh, headed up the fbi office uh, in ann arbor michigan and if you've seen the netflix uh series documentary on finding the Unabomber, he was one of uh, the agents that found the Unabomber in the cabin in Montana. And so one of the healing journeys that I've gotten to be on is to forgive my parents and to release them from the expectation of wishing that they had or believing that they should have done more and letting go of the fact that my father wasn't able to find this man that was terrorizing his daughter yet he was able to find the Unabomber that was hiding out in a cabin in Montana. And so what I would say for parents is, I think it's really important to believe our children. And um, 
you know, when all of the things uh, were happening with Dr. Nasir around the Olympics and uh, the women's gymnastics team, one of the reasons that that was allowed to go on for as long as it was is the young women that were in fact being um, uh, victimized by that doctor weren't believed. And so as parents, it's so important, I believe, to understand what's happening from our children's perspective, to step into their shoes, to appreciate their experience, and to believe them until um, you know proven otherwise. Dr. Stasekul, um, thanks for that. Both your knowledge and literally the beauty with which you delivered that, it was very, um, had a lot of gravity to it. Uh, let's talk about the book for a moment. And I, and I don't usually, like I said before, have a book be the focal point, but you've authored this book just out from Hachette called The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. And I wanna talk about the five, but tell us why you wrote this book and what do you want us to know about this book? And then we'll take a couple of minutes and go through each of these five, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, it's it's probably obvious to you now, Scott, and those that are listening, that I pretty early experienced some significant challenge. And so looking back, I think I was already oriented around understanding how I was going to effectively move through this challenge that I was experiencing, especially with not feeling that I had necessarily the level of support that I would have liked. And as I moved into graduate school, I started looking at, well, how did other people effectively face challenge? And what I now call the three C's, challenge, change, and complexity, I wanted to understand, are there commonalities for all of us as humans that when these tremendously unbalancing moments show up in our lives, that there perhaps would be a series of strategies or behaviors that we could engage in that would allow us to create a more positive and productive outcome. So what I've done now is I've interviewed hundreds of people and collected thousands of pieces of data over the course of two decades to understand first and foremost, are there commonalities that exist amongst us that allow us to more effectively face challenges or the three Cs? And I found that there are. And then I was able to appreciate what are those five behaviors. So just at those moments when, you know, in our professional life or our personal life, things are not going well, we're able to say to, and, and we're literally saying to ourselves, what am I going to do? I wanted to share this blueprint with people, the five practices of highly resilient people that actually demonstrates in those moments where we feel deeply afraid, deeply concerned, maybe even paralyzed by the gravity of what's happening, that we actually have a playbook that allows us to understand, okay, if I just do this, if I just you know, put one foot in front of the other in this way, here's how I can move through this experience in a way that will amplify my resilience and give me the best shot at creating a more positive and productive outcome. Dr. Stasekul, before we aired, before we began taping, we were developing some rapport off camera. And I uh, mentioned to you, you asked me how my day was. And I said, well, my wife's not speaking to me today, which sounds like in and of itself like a horrifying thought, but you know, marriage is tough. And I went on to recount with you that my wife's not speaking to me, I'm sure for lots of reasons, but I'm sure that the, the big reason is because yesterday my wife acquired a new car, a, a, a lovely car, it replaced a, a similar model um, but a, a nicer version. And although in her credit, to her credit, she 
talked about how happy she was with the car. And in the evening time, she was lamenting how disappointed she was about a certain thing around the car. It was a pre-owned car, but just barely, and it wasn't detailed the way she wanted. And in my short fuse, I schooled her on her perceived lack of gratitude. And that was 18 hours ago. We've yet to make eye contact or speak. I hope it won't last much longer. And so as I was lamenting to you about my wife's lack of gratitude, you responded back quite quickly to me and say perhaps all she wanted from you was some empathy. And as I'm reading in your book what you call the vulnerability checklist, I'm becoming less confident in how I handle my situation. Be present. Listen. Allow others' experiences. I'm laughing because it's horrifying. Allow others' experiences and choices to be different from your own. Accept more. Judge less. Acknowledge people as their whole selves. Recognize you are not alone. Don't allow fear to keep you silent. Be brave enough to tell your story. And remember that you are not your past. I'm sure my, my wife would not be able to check off all these things because how she felt incapable of being vulnerable with me in a topic that was important to her that I dismissed out of the gate. Um, talk about for a moment, we hear this word empathy all the time, right? It's like a number one leadership competency. It's what we need every leader to practice to both recruit and retain talent. It's the key to developing resilient organizations where people feel comfortable with their leaders to show more empathy. Talk about how you wished I would have handled that situation differently, and then I promise you we'll get into the five practices. Mm, well, thank you so much for also practicing the first practice and, and sharing your own experience from a place of vulnerability. That's so meaningful for me, and I'm sure it's deeply vulnerable or deeply meaningful to hear about your vulnerability um, from your audience and, and those who know you from so many of these beautiful episodes. You know, I was just on a, a webinar with um, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, uh, with Johnny Taylor, who's mm -hmm. the CEO of that organization, and another incredible human um, from Life Guides by the name of Derek Lundgren. And we were actually talking about just this topic, this, you know, empathy, trust, resilience, and, and how these things fit together and call it a business or an organizational setting. And I think the first thing that's important to mention is the difference between sympathy and empathy. And the way that I think about sympathy is, sympathy is sort of me above you, right? I'm, I'm looking over or looking down and saying, ah, oh, I'm so sorry that you're down there. I'm so sorry that that happened to you, right? Whereas empathy is really about looking at someone. It's me with you as opposed to me above you and saying, oh, what you're going through, I feel it. I feel it with you. And the power of this first practice of vulnerability, which by the way, Scott, is really different a lot of times than I think what we've been trained to understand about resilience. Because so many people say to me that they often thought that vulnerability was the opposite of resilience. They thought that vulnerability was weakness. And in fact, vulnerability is about allowing our inside self, our thoughts, feelings, and experience to as closely as possible match the outside self that we share with the world. And vulnerability, the first practice of highly resilient people, becomes incredibly important 
in this conversation around empathy, because when we think about it, we can't tap into empathy or authenticity as leaders until we tap into our own vulnerability. Sympathy is not vulnerable because I still get to maintain my position and say, oh, I'm sorry that you down there are going through that. Vulnerability allows us to engage in empathy, which means I tap into something vulnerable inside of myself in order to feel or to empathize with what you or someone else is going through in order to be authentic or empathetic in my response as a leader. You know, and so for you, Scott, as you so generously shared your experience with your wife, you know, it's it's a tremendously exciting time to, to get a new vehicle. And I'm sure she was excited about it, looking forward to it, perhaps engaged in the process of getting the vehicle. And, you know, when something like that is delivered, when it comes to fruition, uh, I think it can feel disappointing when we imagined things to be one way. And then in fact, it wasn't quite delivered up to our expectations. Maybe we just wanted it to be a little bit different or we wanted um, things to turn out in a slightly different way, or we wanted to feel supported or seen by how the vehicle you know, was detailed. She wanted to enjoy it to its fullest ability. And so maybe an opportunity there um, if you had the had the ability to go back and do it again, would be to say, oh, you know, I hear from you what you're saying. You really wanted this car to just feel perfect, to be beautiful, and you could just sort of slide into it and make it your own. And there's just this one little piece that you hoped would be different, that you feel a little disappointed by. And I'm sorry to hear that that was your experience, or I understand what you're saying when you share that experience with me. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most beautiful things that we can do in our relationships with others, whether that's a, a parenting relationship, a, a couple relationship, um, even a relationship at work, um, for those of us that are leaders, we're not always gonna do everything right. We're not always going to say the right thing, respond in the, you know, precise, uh, right tenor with just the right words. And what we get to do is, is come back to it and to say, you know what? Yesterday, I said a thing and I think about it and it wasn't supportive. I didn't show up for you or the team or for you as my wife the way that I wanted to. And I'm really sorry about that. And what I wish I would have said or what I wish I would have done is this. I wonder if you could forgive me and if we could try again. Do you make house calls? Because <laughs> I might need you on retainer. Uh, great advice. Uh, you did a wonderful job of also describing the animated video that Dr. Brene Brown produced around empathy and sympathy all over the web. I encourage our listeners and viewers to Google Brene Brown and see that video. It's a great illustration of how Dr. Stasekul described it as well. Okay, we talked a little bit about vulnerability. Your book is The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. Practice one is just that of vulnerability. Practice two is productive perseverance. Practice three is that of connection. 
practice four is that of a word you've made up called gradiosity. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then lastly, practice five is the practice of possibility. Anything you would add to the first practice of vulnerability, and then we'll move on to the next practice. You know, I would put a bow on that practice simply by saying, uh, and I love that you brought up Brene Brown, how much I appreciate how she's brought vulnerability into, say, sort of the common discourse uh, of our dialogues and conversations around leadership qualities and characteristics at work. And one of the ways that I wanted to further this knowledge and to uh, continue the conversation around vulnerability is one, I think a lot of people, while we now appreciate that vulnerability is tremendously important, we still don't necessarily know what it is or how to recognize it. Or maybe when we're crossing some kind of line and going from vulnerability to too much information. So one of the things that I did in my book, because I've researched vulnerability to such a great extent, is I wanted to further that dialogue. And so I do that by defining vulnerability uh, so we know what it is. And I also talk about something called the vulnerability bias. And the vulnerability bias appears to be the sort of hardwired uh, cognitive um, process in our brains where as soon as we think about being vulnerable with someone, there's a sense of fear that, that percolates within us. And for many people, there's often this voice that says, don't do that, don't be vulnerable. And the voice takes it one step further and says, in fact, if you are vulnerable, the three L's will occur. People won't like you, they won't love you, and they might leave. And that's a powerful prohibition that keeps us from stepping out, call it, in our vulnerability. And so as we look at this practice of vulnerability, uh, I talk about the difference between genuine and performative vulnerability, how we can face and identify the vulnerability bias, and how we can actually practically implement the practice of vulnerability, given how important we know it is, especially based on Brene Brown's work and living a wholehearted life. Thank you for that. I'm mindful of our time, so let's do a speed round, about a minute apiece on the remaining four. Practice one is that of vulnerability. Practice two is productive perseverance. Riff on that. Yeah, productive perseverance is the intelligent pursuit of a goal. A lot of people ask me, and I live here in Philadelphia, so uh, I'm nearby to UPenn, and of course, Angela Duckworth and her amazing work on grit. And a lot of people ask me, is are grit and resilience synonymous? And they are not. But grit shows up here in this practice of productive perseverance because productive perseverance is about, on the one hand, continuing to pursue goals despite facing challenges. And then on the other hand, recognizing when we're in moments of diminishing returns and being able to pivot or actually choose a new goal or direction. And so resilience is not about sticking with a thing and it's also not about giving up or quitting too early. It's the intelligent pursuit of a goal, knowing when to maintain the mission and when to effectively implement a plan B. Practice three is that of connection. Expand on that. You know, oftentimes when we think of connection, we think of our external connections, the connections we have with others. And in fact, this also is a two-part practice. First and foremost, it's about the connection we have with ourselves. It's about knowing our strengths and talents. It's about trusting our gut, knowing our worth and value. It's about listening to our instincts, our intuition, the voice within. And what I find for so many leaders is because 
they have incredibly large scopes of influence and control, especially when we're getting into the executive ranks and into the C-suite, I often find that that internal connection becomes uh, narrower and narrower and the internal voice becomes quieter and quieter because we're so focused externally on our relationships and how we're serving our organizations. So connections about first and foremost, continuing to cultivate a deep connection with ourselves, knowing ourselves deeply, and then also cultivating connections with others and navigating the intersectionality of our internal and external connections in those moments where they're inevitably at odds with one another. Four, you call the practice of gratiosity. You made up a word, uh, love that. Gratitude and generosity, talk about that. Sure. So what I was finding in my interviews with people is as I learned about how they had effectively faced challenge, they talked about after some time finding gratitude in the challenge. Even if they wouldn't have chosen the experience, they were able to, after some time, as I mentioned, look on the circumstances and to find gratitude for what had occurred. To say, you know, I didn't want to be in that car accident. I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want this part of our business to fail. And yet I can see the good in it. I can see how myself and our team and our you know organization or my family, how good came out of that. And I'm grateful for what I learned in that process. And then the second part was after finding that gratitude is that people who were maximally resilient are also sharing their resilient stories generously. And this does really two things. When we tell our resilient stories, and oftentimes these are the stories that you know, we most don't want to tell, but most need to be told, this is drawing on our vulnerability and it allows us to, on one hand, solidify our own resilience, how we showed up in this moment of challenge, change, and complexity, and also to light the path for others coming up behind us. These incredible stories of resilience are amazing at town halls, to be part of coaching and mentorship conversations, you know, rather than simply giving people advice. So it's the gratitude of being able to find the good in the circumstance, even if we wouldn't have chosen the experience, and then sharing our stories generously, which solidifies our own resilience in that experience and also lights the path for those behind us or that are coming up, and it can even be part of someone else's survival guide. And you've listed number five as the practice of possibility, kind of leaves us on a high note, a hope. Tell us about that. Sure. The practice of possibility is first and foremost about privileging progress over perfection. One of the quotes that really stuck with me from my time at Nike and getting to learn from the incredible leaders there is Bill Bowerman, one of the co-founders at Nike said, perfection is a luxury we can't afford. And in fact, if the folks at Nike and the, and the founders of that organization cannot afford perfection, I would say none of us can because it, it really holds us back and it creates stakes that are too high, impossible to achieve and often uh, leads to procrastination. So we get to focus on progress rather than perfection. And then possibility is all about in these moments of challenge, change, and complexity to recognize that it's not just the challenge, that there's ultimately a possibility for growth here, a possibility for change, a possibility for renewal. And what that means is in those three C moments, the challenge, change, and complexity, we get to effectively evaluate both the opportunities that are being presented to us alongside the associated risks. 
What do you say, doctor, to people that are just tired of being resilient? I'm tired of school shootings. I'm tired of lobby-driven legislation. I'm tired of the pandemic or the political vitriol. I'm tired of inflation or the economy or the Middle East or Ukraine. I, can, I, mean, I probably said some of those things. What do you say to people that say, I'm tired of being resilient? Is there ever a time when resilient is, is not the right mindset, practice, skill set to have? Yeah, it's, I, I love that you brought this up. You know, in some ways, I think resilience needs a bit of a better PR campaign uh, because resilience isn't what ails us. It's, it's basically like um, saying that we're tired of resilience is like going to the doctor for an infection and wanting to feel better and saying, gosh, I'm so tired of these antibiotics that are going to make me feel better. What is exhausting us is the sheer magnitude, to your point, Scott, of the challenge, change, and complexity we're experiencing, both inside of ourselves, inside of our families and communities, and then as we think about, you know, more broadly across the global landscape. But resilience is not what ails us. Resilience is what allows us to be better, to have the skill set to effectively address these moments. So are we tired? Are we exhausted? Have we just had so much heaped on our plate in the past couple of years that we feel like there's more for us to sort of sift through than ever before in our lives? Absolutely. That is so very real. And yet saying that we're tired of resilience is like saying we're tired of a curative treatment. It's like saying we're tired of antibiotics that are gonna make us feel better. Are we, are, we're really tired of the challenge and then what we need to exert to effectively respond. Um, and yet I wanted to demystify resilience and create, as I said, a, a blueprint or a playbook that allows us to more effectively and seamlessly implement our own resilience that in fact, it's truly the essence of what it means to be human. It already exists within us. And it's about identifying those skills and strengths and amplifying. Uh, similar but related topic, one of the productivity tips that Franklin Covey teaches our millions of clients around the world is protect your team from urgencies. Because not everybody can live in an urgency addicted environment, especially when the leader loves to work under pressure the dopamine, the adrenaline, the validation, the saving of the day. Sometimes, as a leader, you have to protect your team from you, especially a leader like me who loves a good crisis because I feel valued, I love to save the day, and I'm known to cook something up to the crisis level, even when it's not, because I like to save the day. Sometimes I have to protect my team from me. Similarly, I'm guessing you would speak to leaders to say, Maybe there's things you could be doing that require your team members to be less resilient. Processes, systems, culture, deadlines. Take that wherever you'd like to go and we'll end our conversation. What should leaders be doing to lessen the need for their team members to be resilient inside of the organization? Mm, yeah, you know, I'd say a couple of things. The first is something that comes up in my travels and conversations with CEOs and CHROs and chief people officers as we're bringing this work inside of their organizations is really the fundamental sort of landscape of psychological safety. And when we don't have a sense of psychological safety or our people don't have a sense of psychological safety, 
when we don't know, um, you know, what's going to happen next, when we don't have a line of sight into how the operating plan is changing internally, uh, when we don't know, you know, who's going to purchase our organization. I'm working with a company right now that's up for sale and the people are very feeling very anxious about the fact that they don't know what entity is going to, to purchase them, right? So when we have a lot of unknowns, our human brain doesn't, doesn't like that. <clears throat> our human brain really likes clarity. And so what we can do with leaders is we can provide clarity. We can provide clarity in our strategy and our operations and being clear about the deliverables and results that we want to allow people to create. You know, something that Patrick Lencioni says that I love is if there's any sort of um, differentiation between leaders at the top of the house in the C-suite, if people don't agree, that daylight, as he calls it, as it filters down through the organization, ultimately becomes blinding for leaders. So having that alignment in our C-suite allows people to have the clarity and even the certainty of what's being asked of them and the results that they're being um, tasked with uh, to create. The other part of that, as we sort of get back to psychological safety, is being able to be in an environment where people feel like not only is there a level of expectation and clarity, and that people inside of the organization are going to have their back. Now, something that that leaders do, right, we, we all do, is we tell people, hey, you're in a safe space. This is a safe environment. And I tell people, please don't ever say that because we cannot promise some, someone that they live in a safe environment, that this is a safe place for them to be. Um, we cannot control the environment. And so if something happens where they feel unsafe, it makes it worse. So what we get to say to people is, how do we create a safer environment? How do we put agreements and constructs and structure in place that feels safer and create that sense of psychological safety. So therefore our people can be braver. They can surface their needs. They can talk about their difficulties. They can share what's not working as an organization so we can all be more effective together. Tell us briefly about the Resilience Leadership Institute. Sure. So I developed the, Resi the Resilience Leadership Institute as a way for my team and I to be able to share this work, the five practices of highly resilient people across the globe. So we offer a, you know, a suite of consulting services ranging from our book to keynote speaking, executive coaching, training and workshops, uh, talent strategy and succession planning around resilience and high potential leaders to be able to suffuse this resilience and the five practices into organizations and to allow leaders, organizations, teams to be more effective in the work that they're already doing. Dr. Taryn Marie Stasekel, riveting interview today. Thank you for modeling literally all of these practices in the last 45 plus minutes. The book is The Five Practices of Resilient People, Why Some Flourish When Others Fold. Thanks for joining us today. And My delight and honor, Scott. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.